Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Laymiller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. David Buss, a professor of psychology at the University of Texas at Austin. He is considered the world's leading scientific expert on strategies of human mating, and he is one of the founders of the field of evolutionary psychology. He has published several books, including The Evolution of Desire, The Dangerous Passion, and The Murderer Next Door. His latest book is titled When Men Behave Badly, The Hidden Roots of Sexual Deception, Harassment, and Assault. We're going to be talking about his new book today, which explores the evolutionary roots of conflict between the sexes. Some of the topics that we'll get into include why lying and deception are so common in online dating, why people in long-term committed relationships often cultivate backup mates, why we're often attracted to people with antisocial personality traits, as well as why jealousy is the most dangerous emotion. This is going to be a fascinating conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, David, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Uh, Thank you, Justin. I'm delighted to be here chatting with you. Thanks so much for joining me. I've been reading your work for years, so it's a pleasure to finally have the chance to speak with you. But before we dive into your new book, I always like to begin by asking my guests to tell us a little bit about their professional journey. So how did you come to be a psychologist in the first place? And how did evolutionary psychology in particular come to be the focus of your career? Wow, those are two very big questions. So I'll have to give you the (laughs) short answer to both. Basically, I became interested as an undergraduate in human nature. I wanted to find out what made people tick, what caused people to get out of bed in the morning and pursue the goals that they did, this goal rather than that goal, or something rather than nothing. And so my initial interest was in developing or understanding what human nature is all about. And that's what led me ultimately to evolutionary theory, because I was searching for a set of principles uh, that were related to the causal origins of human nature. You know, what, what is the causal process that creates who we are and the mechanisms of mind that define human nature? And that inexorably leads you to evolutionary theory. And at the time that I was led to it, there was no such thing as evolutionary psychology. This is hard for some young people to understand that because they say, how did you, why did you get into evolutionary psychology as opposed to some other, but there wasn't any field of evolutionary psychology. But what I started with was dabbling in testing a couple of hypotheses that had been floating around by Don Simons, author of Evolution of Human Sexuality, uh, Trivers, uh, George Williams, etc. And so I started dabbling in it. And when the results came in that supported the evolutionary hypotheses, that's really what you know, caused the cascade. And so I became more and more enmeshed. I had to learn a whole new field, namely evolutionary biology, which I had no prior courses in or any experience with. And so I kind of had to start from scratch. And so I basically put everything aside for six months and did nothing but read an evolutionary biology to try to master these principles. And there, as you know, there's a, a fair amount of technical knowledge involved. It's not something you can read like one newspaper article and sort of grasp the whole body of technical knowledge of evolutionary theory. So that's sort of how I got into it. Well, thanks for sharing that. It sounds like it was a significant investment, but we've learned a lot from the work that you've done. 
Now, we're going to be talking a lot about evolutionary psychology today. And I think a good starting point for that is to kind of talk about what evolutionary psychology is and is not. Now, I'm someone who has taught college human sexuality courses for many years. And I find that evolutionary psychology is actually one of the most controversial things that comes up in my classes. And I have some students who come in kind of having already dismissed evolutionary psychology because they see it as reinforcing certain gender stereotypes or as justifying bad behavior. And so I found that I've had to frame discussions of evolutionary psychology very carefully so that my students don't shut down because I want them to engage with the material. So let me ask you, you know, what do you mean when you say the term evolutionary psychology? And why do you think it's important for people who are listening, who might have negative preconceptions about this idea to not immediately dismiss it and to really consider what it has to say? Yeah, I mean, I've been teaching this stuff for over 30 years. So I'm familiar with all of the forms of resistance and, and um, misunderstandings that you just captured as well as a bunch of others. And I sometimes like to say that evolutionary psychology is an equal opportunity offender, you know, in the sense that it offends people on the political right who have a deeply held religious views that seem to contradict and they reject evolutionary theory. Uh, and then those on the left, uh, it also offends some who perceive it erroneously to interfere with goals of social justice and so forth. And then a third source is some people just don't like the findings that have emerged. So some people are very committed to the view, for example, that there are no sex differences. Whatever differences between males and females exist, they're due to culture or stereotypes or bad parenting or, and, you know, the, what I call the usual suspects. And so the notion that there are evolved sex differences, and in particular, evolved sex differences in our mating psychology and sexual psychology, this offends some people. Uh, so it's an equal opportunity to offend. There's enough in it to offend everybody. But uh, what is it? What is evolutionary psychology? It's basically psychology using an evolutionary perspective or, or an evolutionary lens to shed light on the nature of our psychological mechanisms and their functions. I think that's the briefest description that I can give. And historically, as, as you probably know, Justin, that the field of psychology has ignored the question, what is the function of X? What is the function of Y? And you can't do that. I mean, it would be like if you were a medical researcher studying the liver or the kidneys and you said, well, I don't care what the function is. I'm just studying the liver. Well, if you understand its function, then that provides a deeper understanding of its workings, its nature, and when it goes wrong. And so the same applies to our psychology. Another way of phrasing that is there is only evolutionary psychology. There's no such thing as a non-evolutionary psychology in the sense that whatever psychological mechanisms we have, and we're still discovering them, they evolve through a process of natural and sexual selection. They are housed in the brain and the body. The brain and the body are physical systems that evolve just like all other systems that we know about. And so it's really, you, you can run, but you can't hide from it. And I think the payoff really has been the empirical harvest that it's generated, and particularly the empirical harvest when it comes to human sexuality and mating. I mean, when I first started studying sexuality and mating, I can guarantee you the theories uh, were, were 
laughable. If you went back to the textbooks 30 years ago and, and looked at them, you'd say, what, what are they even talking about? And now we know a great deal about it. Not all of it's been generated by an evolutionary perspective. Of course, there's lots of scientific discoveries that have been made and can be made without that perspective. But it's a, it's a useful perspective in guiding researchers to important domains of inquiry to posing questions that you wouldn't otherwise pose, such as, importantly, what is the function of this, X or Y? And so applied to human sexuality raises questions, as, as you well know, does female orgasm have a function, for example? Are our mate preferences arbitrary, or do they show functionality as well? The emotions, such as sexual jealousy or even sexual arousal, lust, what are the design features of these? What are the circumstances that trigger the activation of these emotions. So basically, an evolutionary lens is a lens that sharpens focus, guides researchers to important domains of inquiry, and has yielded a lot of interesting findings. Yeah, so it takes a different level of analysis for looking at these complex issues that we're studying. And I appreciate everything you said about some of the misconceptions that people have about it, and especially the the discomfort around a lot of the findings that people have. And something that I found to be useful when I have discussions about evolutionary psychology is to talk about how evolution doesn't necessarily select for traits that are moral or just or politically correct, right? Because we're talking about you know, evolution, in, in, in particular, the traits that get passed on are the ones that promote successful reproduction, not necessarily what is socially valued. And so I think when you sort of take that perspective, that helps to allow people to engage with the material a little bit more, at least in my experience. Yes. Yeah, no, that's a good one. And I'm going to take your tip and use that one, that one more. And, you know, I have studied, I confess that I've been drawn to the darker sides of human nature. But I've also written papers and done some research on the evolution of love and positive emotions such as that. But my current book, When Men Behave Badly, that deals with sexual deception, harassment, assault, this is more gets into the darker side of human sexuality. And it's one of the things that I've kind of been dragged into inexorably, partly from a previous book that I co-wrote with Dr. Cindy Meston called Why Women Have Sex where one of the shocking things to me was how many people have had bad experiences with sex, you know, because we like to think, and, and of course it is, sex can be one of the most joyful, ecstatic, life-affirming activities that we engage in, but then it also has this darker side of unpleasant, painful, coercive uh, elements of sexuality. And I think both of those suites of sexuality have to be understood, and my book, for better or for worse, focuses on understanding the darker sides of human sexuality with the view that it's only by understanding the nature of, of our evolved psychology having to do with these darker sides that we can eliminate them. You mentioned earlier that some people are worried that it's an excuse for bad behavior. Part of the reason I wrote this book was precisely the opposite. I want to get rid of bad behavior. I want to get rid of sexual harassment, coercion, assault, etc. And I think that some of the people who have read the book said, said this should be a required reading of all college freshmen, you know, because as you probably know, it's college freshmen women are more vulnerable to these forms of sexual coercion than just about anyone else. And in the book, I get into reasons 
why that's the case and how do we avoid it. Yeah, I think you make a lot of really important points there. One about, you know, the importance of acknowledging both the positive and negative side, the darker side of sex. We have to talk about both of them. You know, there are some people who only focus on one or the other, but, you know, I think it's important that we acknowledge that sex has different effects on different people. There are some dangerous forms of it. There are some positive forms of it. And so we have to talk about it in its entirety. And I think, you know, you also make an important point that just because evolutionary psychology might come up with an explanation for why a bad behavior exists that doesn't rationalize it or justify it or make it okay. I think a different way to frame that for some folks might be that, well, if we understand the cause of it, then we can try and change it. And if we don't understand the cause, then it becomes much more difficult to deal with it. So speaking of your book, When Men behave badly. I'm curious as to how you came up with that title, because I'm sure some people will read that title and say, well, but don't women also behave badly sometimes in sex and relationships? <laughs> uh, so can you give us a quick clarification on, on that and why you chose this title? Well, so when I started writing the book, the broader topic that I've been interested in for many, many years is conflict between the sexes. That's why do men and women seem to get into conflict and predictable forms of conflict? And when I started writing the book, I, my goal was to provide an equal coverage of men and women, bad stuff men do, bad stuff women do, and then co-evolved defenses against the bad stuff that the members of the other sex does. And so the early chapters actually do deal with both men and women. So it deals with how women deceive men on the dating market, how men deceive women on the dating market. But when you get to the more... Um, the darker, more violent aspects of sexuality, men tend to have more and more of a monopoly on those things. So, for example, sexual harassment. Some women engage in sexual harassment, but it's mostly male perpetrators, mostly male victims. When you get into stalking behavior or criminal stalking, it's about 80% men, 20% women who do it. When you get into intimate partner violence, which is a form of sexual control as a stock. We can get into that issue. Some people argue, well, both men and women do it, but the more violent it gets, the more men tend to have a monopoly on it. So there's shelter for battered women. As far as I know, there's only one in the entire country of the United States for battered men. Now, there are many causes that might be men are ashamed to go to uh, shelter, ashamed to go to the police, but nonetheless, women suffer more damage and you know, so so basically, the more violent you get, and then of course with sexual assault, rape, men, it's like ninety nine percent plus male perpetrators, and then primarily female victims. Although males also can be victims, and that's why I focus on men. Now, this is not a book of ma uh, male bashing. I should make it absolutely clear: it's it's not, and that's why I say when men. So it's only some men. It's not all men, and it's only some men in some circumstances, and that's what the book tries to identify. Only some men in some circumstances engage in this horrendous behavior. People might say, well, there's sexual harassment. I'm not that kind of guy. I don't engage in it. And they're absolutely right. Most men do not. In the workplace, there are serial sexual harassers. A minority of men tend to commit the majority of acts of sexual harassment. And the same is true with other forms of sexual coercion. That's why I tend to focus more and more on men and the bad stuff men do, as well as women's co-evolved defenses against the bad stuff men do, which is extremely important. Yeah. So your book 
does cover a lot of different topics and we could talk for hours about all of the different content that's in there. But something that I want to focus on for a bit is this idea of deception in the world of mating and dating and where it comes from. We know that there's a lot of deception that takes place. You know, for example, people might post outdated profile photos online that aren't an accurate representation of what they look like now, or they might exaggerate their accomplishments in a conversation or in their profile, or they might use a display of wealth to make it seem like they have more money than they really do. But something that you talk about in your book is that, you know, mating deception is not unique to humans. You know, it is something that we see in the animal kingdom too, and it takes different forms across different species. And so, for example, there's this story you tell early on in your book about male spiders that try to trick female spiders into mating that I think is so fascinating. As a starting point for our discussion of sexual deception, can you just tell us a little bit about the spiders and, and what they're doing there? Yeah, so basically the, the male spiders, the females prefer to mate with the male spiders who offer this what's called a nuptial gift. Uh, might be a dead insect or a morsel of food of some kind. And what they do is they they wrap it up in silk, and then the female has to kind of unwrap the gift in order to eat it. But sometimes if men can't get the morsel of food or the dead insect that the females find attractive, they'll just put a piece of trash in there and wrap it up in silk and try to deceive her in that. And so females have evolved adaptations to smell this wrapping of silk and see whether it truly contains the valuable items and then some males will put like a trace element of food to try to deceive the females and and then males also do other things like sometimes the females will try to take the food and then run away before copulating and then so males have adaptations to try to prevent that from happening and so there's this co-evolutionary arms race which is a principle that i use throughout the book uh, that's very much analogous to predators and prey where for each increment in speed and agility of a predator that favors increments in speed and agility of prey. And so you see these adaptations, counter-adaptations, defenses, counter-defenses in this perpetual co-evolutionary arms race, which in this case is between the sexes within a species rather than between different species. So deception is, is widespread throughout in mating systems. Uh, humans don't have a lock on that one. Yeah, for, for sure. And there are, there are lots of examples of this. I've, I've covered this on my blog before about all the deception that exists in nature. And I think it's it's so incredibly fascinating. But obviously, you know, humans aren't spiders. But there are thousands of examples of this kind of deceptive behavior in nature, which highlights this idea of sexual conflict co-evolution, which is what you were talking about, where when one sex evolves a tactic to exploit the other, you get this co-evolved defense in the other sex and, you know, becomes, as you said, that sort of evolutionary arms race. So one of the things you discuss in the book is that women evolved to be more selective than men when it comes to mating and relationships. And that this seems to be one of the key factors that's involved in sexual conflict and may help to explain why men often engage in deceptive mating practices. So let's talk about that in the world of online dating. You know, what's the evidence that women are more selective when they're dating online? And what are some of the countermeasures that men take in response? <laughs> okay, great question. Well, one source of evidence is just how many profiles people respond to. And so, for example, now Tinder is, is one example. It tends to be a little bit more of a hookup app than, say, some others like OkCupid or, or eHarmony. But on Tinder, 
there's empirical evidence men tend to swipe right on like dozens or hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of women because they find many, many women acceptable above threshold in the sexual sense. Women are much more discriminating, particularly when it comes to sex. I should say that both men and women are about equally discriminating when it comes to long-term mating, long-term committed relationships. But when it comes to sexual activity, women do tend to be more discriminating. One of the startling findings that most people don't know about, and I was shocked when I discovered it, and that is that on average, men find women to be more attractive than women find men to be. And so what that means is that like on these dating apps, women tend to be attracted to men who are in about the top 20, 20 percentile or so of the dating apps based on various criteria, photograph being extremely important, whereas men tend to be attracted to a wider range. So men find a whole range of women to be acceptable above threshold. Women tend to find that top 20 percent. And so what that means is that it creates this huge imbalance where the top 20% of men are getting all the responses from the females and the bottom 80% of men are getting very, very few and some none at all. So that you ask, well, what is the evidence for that? Well, that's, that's evidence. So as one example, I, I know a woman, a colleague of mine, successful, attractive, happens to be a professor, and she went on one of these online dating apps and within... I think it was hours of posting her her profile and photo, she got something like 500 responses from, from men. And so she meticulously went through profile after profile and spent a week, you know, sifting through, selected one out of the 500, uh, responded to, had a coffee date, and decided he wasn't above threshold after all. So, <laughs> so kind of a highlight. Now, not all women are that discriminating, but kind of highlights the difference in the the sex difference there. Yeah. And I've seen some similar studies, you know, for example, in one, they created a bunch of fake profiles for men or for women, and then they had them swipe right on basically everyone in the, you know, local geographic area. And they find that the hit rate for the male profiles was really low. I think it was less than 1%, whereas the hit rate for the female profiles was closer to 10%. So, you know, you're talking about a huge difference in, you know, the amount of responses that people can get. And so... I think that raises the question of, you know, sort of given the nature of this, the circumstances of this, are we all kind of screwed when it comes to online dating? <laughs> you know, what's your take on that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't think I don't think we're all we're all screwed. I think that there are ways around it. You know, there are positive and negative aspects of online dating. Uh positive being that you have access to hundreds or thousands or potentially millions of potential mates that you would never encounter. Uh, normally in your day-to-day life. And we evolve in the context of small group living where you might encounter perhaps a dozen or a few dozen potential mates in your lifetime. And now we have these great opportunities. Of course, this can create decision paralysis, as it's sometimes called. But I think there, there are ways around it. So as you undoubtedly know, there are some sites that vet claims so that, that do more background checks so you know can potentially weed out Liars, deceivers, sexual predators, those with a criminal record, uh, or even check, you know, income tax returns, you know. So it was one of the mm-hmm. forms of deception is that guys tend to overclaim their status and, and, and resources and pose themselves next to Lamborghinis and so forth and as, as ways of deception. Now, why do they do that? 
Of course, they do that in part because women are attuned to a man's resource acquisition abilities. We may glamorize the, the, the starving artist or the, the humble poet who is on welfare, but in the long run, women tend not to be, not to go for those guys. Uh, so guys do it because it, it works. It, it embodies the criteria, the mate selection criteria that women do in fact find attractive. But there are ways around the deception. There are also sites like, for example, one that I think is good is uh, Bumble, which allows women to make the first move. And women have to make the first move. And so that, that prevents a woman, for example, from being barraged by hundreds or thousands of guys and having to sift through all those. So, so I think that there are ways around it. The other critical thing that I talk about in some depth in the book is mate value and mate value discrepancies. And one of the things that's critical is to pick people who are within your mate value range. So, you know, using the crude American 10-point system, if a guy is a six and he's constantly going after women who are eights, he's going to be in for a miserable time. Or vice versa, if a woman's a, a six and she's always going after guys who are eights, it's not going to work out in the long run. And so you have to have an accurate assessment of your own mate value and go after people who are within the, your mate value range. And now, of course, the, there's consensual mate value. So things, you know, qualities that most everybody desires. Uh, but there are also individual differences in that. So you may value someone who's knowledgeable about Russian literature, for example, and someone else values someone who rides motorcycles. You know, so and, and that's that's a great thing. And that's one of the things that internet dating allows is is the the individual differences in the components of mate value to be expressed and to be acted upon. So you can find someone who shares your particular interests and values. So in short, I think that there are there are different ways around it. But I think it's also it, it offers dangers, uh, novel dangers to women that were not previously present. And then there are lots of cases they hit the news periodically about women who have been assaulted, for example, from serial online sexual predators. So so it's so very important to be careful out there. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, since we're on the subject of deception, we've talked about it a little bit in dating, but we also know that there's a lot of deception that happens even in committed long-term relationships. And so, for example, in your book, you talk about this idea of mate insurance, where, you know, some people are sort of consciously or subconsciously cultivating a backup mate when they're in a relationship, you know, kind of just in case it doesn't work out. Do you have any sense as to how common that behavior is and, and why people do it? Yeah, well, I think is uh, to reverse the answers to your question, why people do it is, is because over evolutionary time, something could always go wrong. You know, you're, you're made if a, if a woman could die in childbirth, if it's a man could get injured in, in a fight or killed in warfare or die of disease, um, or, or just dump you. So something can always go wrong. And so if you had to start out in the mating market from square one, uh, it's just a lot harder than if you have some uh, a backup mate or two that you can use as what I call mate insurance. And so that's the why we, we have them, both men and women have them. And it's pretty pervasive. So this is research that I did with Josh Duntley, former graduate student, is now a professor, and what we found is that most people have backup mates. 
And we even asked, like, what would, how upset would you be if your backup mate got married or got involved in a committed relationship? And what we found is that women in particular were a lot more upset about that than men, in part because it takes that backup mate kind of out of the mating pool. They no longer are as viable a backup mate if they get seriously involved with someone else. And so I think mate insurance is uh, very common and there are very good evolutionary reasons why we do it. That is fascinating. We have much more to discuss, including why we're often attracted to partners with dark personality traits who don't end up making for the best long-term partners, as well as why jealousy is the most dangerous emotion. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Promescent has everything you need for amazing sex, including their signature delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men increase their stamina in the bedroom. It has Target's own technology, which allows you to desensitize only the areas you want and customize it for your body. Check it out and see why it has thousands of five-star reviews. It's also recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals. Promescent offers a number of other sexual wellness products, including their Vitaflux supplements, female arousal gel, and line of personal lubricants that come in water-based, silicon, and organic varieties. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. Also, all orders come in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T.com. And we're back. My guest today is Dr. David Buss, author of the new book, When Men Behave Badly. So let's talk about how people are often attracted to partners with dark personalities. You know, there's kind of this interesting paradox in the attraction literature that I've seen where when you ask people what they want in a romantic partner, most people say they want somebody who's going to be nice to them, right? But by the same token, there's also a lot of research finding that people are often attracted to individuals with dark personality traits that involve being callous and manipulative, such as narcissism. So can you tell us a little bit about this? Why are we often drawn to people with these antisocial traits? Yes. So first, yeah, uh, the dark triad, as they're called, uh, involves narcissism, which is one of the hallmarks is a sense of entitlement, grandiosity, inflated sense of self, a psychopathy, which is lack of empathy is one of the hallmarks. And then Machiavellianism is the third element of the dark triad, which is people who pursue a, an exploitative interpersonal strategy. So these are the cheaters, the deceivers, the exploiters in the world. Now, why women in particular are attracted to these? First of all, we have to qualify it by saying that it's mostly young women. Okay, so as women get older, they are less and less attracted to these dark triad guys. But why they're attracted is uh, they're often quite charming. They often display cues of high status and social confidence and, and verve, and women are attracted to high status, uh, high status guys. And so often it is the case that women will be attracted to these guys, they'll get involved with them, and then they'll, things will end badly. So these dark triad guys, as I said, they tend to be exploitative, they tend to cheat on their partners, and they also are notorious for seduction and abandonment. So they will woo a woman, successfully court her, have sex, and then, and then disappear or, or, or ghost her or have three other wives on the side that she didn't know about to begin with. So, so they have many qualities that women do desire. Uh, they can also be extremely exciting. 
you know, they're risk takers, they're daring, they, you know, they, they have many of the qualities that women do find attractive. But over time, I think women learn that often the hard way that these are not good long-term mates. Yeah. And I think it's important to point out that when we're saying women are attracted or men are attracted, women do this, men do that. We're talking about average differences, group averages. And there's a lot of individual variability, which I just think is important to point out and recognize. And, you know, also that, you know, our conversation here is focused primarily on research based on heterosexual men and women, right? And so when we're talking about dating and sexual dynamics for gay, lesbian, bisexual people, they might be quite different. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, I mean, early on in the book, I I make precisely those points that when we talk about sex difference, we are talking about on average uh, sex differences. And the book deals primarily, although not exclusively, with heterosexual individuals. And I do talk about some research not involving heterosexuals, but there tends to be a lot less research on these populations. So I'm kind of looking forward to more research being done, which it is now. I have several colleagues and former students who are actively doing large-scale projects on non-heterosexual populations. But this book deals primarily with heterosexuals. Now, since we're talking about dark personality traits, my understanding of the research on the dark triad is that men are much more likely to have these dark triad traits than women are, but women can certainly have them too. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of how the dark traits might manifest differently in men and women and, you know, how that affects the way that they're approaching sex and dating? I think you kind of gave us a sense of how men do this when they're high on the dark triad, but what about women with dark triad traits? Yeah, women with dark triad traits, so they tend to be, uh, one of the strategies they use is mate poaching. So they, they, they feel no qualms at all about uh, seducing their a friend's husband or boyfriend. They tend to be more into short-term mating compared to long-term mating. They do a lot more partner switching, and they also engage in sexual deception. So they might get into a relationship with one guy because he offers stability and, and resources while having sex with another guy who provides uh, sexual excitement while sleeping with the third guy who's the husband of a friend. So mate poaching is one of the hallmarks of women who are high in the dark triad. Of course, men are high in the dark triad also do mate poaching. They feel no qualms about that. Right. Now, something else you talk a lot about in your book is jealousy and its role in sexual conflict. In fact, you describe jealousy as the most dangerous emotion. So can you tell us a little bit about why that is? And I know this is another one of those big questions, but if jealousy has so many destructive effects, is it really an adaptive emotion? Or, you know, is it maybe that a little bit of jealousy is adaptive, but a lot of it is pathological? So I know there's a lot in there. So we'll just start first with the piece of, you know, why is jealousy the most dangerous emotion? And what are some of the things that it's linked to? Okay, so jealousy... Prior to the evolutionary work on it, it used to be viewed as a, a sign of immaturity or pathology or, you know, low self-esteem. But it, in fact, it's a very functional emotion. And, and it's functional primarily in the context of long-term mating relationships, where if you're in a long-term mating relationship, you need adaptations to guard that relationship, to preserve it, to fend off mate poachers. And jealousy is that emotion. So jealousy is an emotion that is activated when there is a threat to that value relationship. And 
The threat can come in the form of mate poachers. It can come in the form of if your partner is displaying cues to infidelity or defection, uh, or it can be activated just if there are no threats, but there's a bait value discrepancy. So in general, the six tends to get more jealous than the eight. The eight feels very secure in the relationship with the six. The six tends to get more jealous because statistically, there's a higher probability that the, the eight will ha- uh, have an affair or leave the relationship. Now, it's the most dangerous emotion because it's also extraordinarily destructive. It can undermine a relationship and undermine trust in a relationship, but also is the leading predictor of spousal battering and even spousal homicide. So it can lead to all kinds of um, dangerous stuff. So just as an example, if an adult woman is killed, the odds are between 50 and 70% that her killer is a romantic partner or former romantic partner, husband, boyfriend, ex, husband, ex-boyfriend. If a adult male is killed, the odds are only 3% that it was committed by a, a woman. And male sexual jealousy is the leading cause of that. And so, uh, and so that's why I say it's the most dangerous emotion. There's no other emotion that leads to uh, quite so much destruction. And that's just, I mean, leads to violence toward women, also leads to violence toward men. I mean, men kill other men as well. I mean, in the, the legal system, it's been recognized historically as a an emotion that's so powerful that they even call it crimes of passion, that when you're in the, the thrall of this emotion, it's almost like an uncontrollable impulse. So it leads to bad stuff, but it's a necessary emotion. You know, it's as necessary, I argue, as, as, as love is in terms of love and attachment for long-term committed relationships. So there may be some adaptive value is what you're saying to jealousy, but it's it's a double-edged sword, right? Where it can, you know, sort of help in some ways to encourage people to maybe invest more in the relationship or work on issues that they have. But by the same token, the extreme forms of jealousy are linked to a lot of very negative outcomes. Yeah, so jealousy is one of those emotions that can have positive effects and negative effects. On the positive side, when people get jealous, sometimes they they up their commitment to their partner or they increase the amount of attention and devotion and resources to their partner. So basically bestowing benefits on their partner. If you don't have the benefits to bestow, then some engage in cost-inflicting tactics. So it is a double-edged sword. It's a necessary emotion, but it's also a dangerous emotion. Yeah. Now, in your book, you talk about jealousy in terms of it being a universal human emotion. But when I was reading your book, I was thinking about how me as somebody who has done a lot of research looking at people in consensually non-monogamous relationships, I wanted to ask about your take on this concept of compersion, which involves taking pleasure in your partner's pleasure. So in some of my studies of people in polyamorous relationships, they say they don't feel jealousy at all and that they only feel compersion when, say, somebody else is attracted to their partner or their partner is getting sexual pleasure from someone else. So as someone who has studied jealousy extensively, do you have any thoughts on that? And has compersion ever come up in your work? Yeah, yeah, it has. So um, I have a couple of thoughts. So, so one is that uh, I've talked to many people who have uh, engaged in consensual non-monogamy. And so I'm, I'm familiar with them. So I can tell you about the. I haven't studied it extensively, but I, I can tell you some of the reports. Okay. One is that it is said that jealousy is, is the monster figure. 
in poly relationships so that even though some people don't experience it, so these might be selected from the tails of the distribution. I mean, there are individual differences, as you pointed out, with all these things. But nonetheless, it is an emotion, and many in the poly community try to wrestle with it in various ways. And so, for example, I know this one couple who are in a poly relationship, and what they do is that he's particularly upset. And this is kind of interesting because it's, it's also supports the evolutionary work. Uh, he he's fine with her having sex with other women, but he's less fine with her having sex with men. Uh, uh, where she said, if my partner has sex with other women, it doesn't bother me at all. But then one time I saw him walking down the street hand in hand with another woman and I got extremely jealous. So it was a, the cue to kind of an emotional intimacy rather than the sexual infidelity. And that kind of that supports the sex differences in the triggers of jealousy, which have been widely found by evolutionary psychologists and, and, and others. With respect to compersion, I know that people have reported, and I, and I believe the reports, um, uh, but my sense is it's probably either something that you have to overcome, that is overcome your jealous responses and kind of learn how to um, supersede them with a higher order goal. So we know that people can do this with other things. So let's say if you're trying to lose weight, your desire for pizza or calorically rich food, it doesn't disappear, but you're able to override that desire for a period of time with a, a higher order desire. And so you might have a higher order desire where I, I want to uh, make this poly uh, consensual non-monogamous uh, mating situation work. And so I want to override some of the things that would interfere with that. And my guess is, and this is just a speculation, you probably know more about this than I, is that those who experience conversion, you're probably drawing from the tail of the distribution. That is, that is, if you ask most people, would you feel pleasure imagining your partner having passionate sexual intercourse or trying at different sexual positions with someone else? Most would, I think, have trouble with it. So, but there are always individual differences. I mean, in the, uh, ran across cases where some guys set up sexual encounters with between other guys and their wives and they hide in the closet and watch surreptitiously and they get turned on by that. So there are glorious individual differences in all these things. What, what are your thoughts on, on the compersion issue? Yeah. So I think it's important when we talk about compersion and jealousy, you know, some people define compersion as the opposite of jealousy, but I don't think that's the right way to think about it. I think these are separate emotions and that you can feel both jealousy and compersion. And so that that's kind of the way that I would frame it. And some of my colleagues and I, we actually have a paper on compersion coming out soon where we developed a new scale to try and assess that. So I think it'll be interesting to, to try and incorporate that into some research where we can assess both jealousy and compersion at the same time to see if that, you know, really does play out and is a better way of, of thinking about all this. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, that sounds like a great direction. So there's so much more that I would love to discuss with you, but we're running short on time. And there's one other, I think, really important thing that I want to briefly address, which is, you know, what can we do with all of this information that you lay out in your book? You know, you talk about the evolutionary roots of sexual conflict and, you know, what are the potential causes of 
all of these, you know, sort of negative behaviors that we've been discussing, including harassment, stalking, sexual violence, but also in terms of the deception and dating. So my question is, what can we do with all of this information and how can we use it to prevent the bad things from happening and, and also to more successfully navigate dating and relationships? And I know that's a huge question, but yeah. any insights you can provide into kind of, you know, what can we do to take this to the next step? Yeah, a big question. And I, I address it in different chapters in the book, depending on whether it's intimate partner violence or stalking or sexual coercion or sexual harassment. So I'll just give one example. And it's an example of a point you made earlier where deeper knowledge of the causes and the nature of our sexual psychology can help us. And in this particular case, it's sex differences in our sexual psychology, on average sex differences. And one of them has to do with, just mentioned sexual harassment. So sexual harassment is one of those interesting criminal laws where it's defined in part by the psychological state of the victim. And the, that is a reasonable, they use what's called the reasonable person standard. Would a reasonable person view this pattern of conduct as sexually harassing? Well, it turns out research from my lab and others has shown that reasonable women view the same acts as more harassing than reasonable men. So there's a very predictable sex difference in the psychological experience of sexual harassment and how harassing these things are perceived to be. And so a reasonable person standard is actually something that harms women uh, because what if the, the person doing the adjudicating is a reasonable judge or the jury is consisted, consists of reasonable men as opposed to reasonable women? So, uh, so how do you deal with this law that is defined in part by the psychological state of the, of the victim, unlike other other crimes, like say mugging, uh, the psychological state of the person who got, gets mugged is irrelevant. It's the act of the mugging. With sexual harassment, it is critical. And so I think that one solution is to develop a, a reasonable woman's standard for sexual harassment rather than a reasonable person's standard, given that women are the primary victims of sexual harassment. And so I think in this case, the broader point is that knowledge of our on average sex differences in sexual psychology can lead to positive solutions to dealing with some of these issues like sexual harassment and also applied to other things, as I mentioned in the book, in them a partner violence and sexual assault. That is such an important point and, you know, brilliantly links so many different things from, you know, what we're finding in the psychological literature to, you know, what is actually written in the laws to this important social problem. And I think you, you highlight really well how, better understanding these sex differences can play an important role in terms of helping to prevent and reduce a lot of the negative sexual behaviors that we've been talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that, that's what I hope the book is used for, you know, and used for positive purposes because I mean, I know so many women who have been victims of all these things of, intimate partner violence, sexual harassment, stalking, sexual assault. And, and it, it, it is truly horrifying. You know, I mean, it, when you know you have personal friends or romantic partners or family members who have been victims, I think it, it gives you greater empathy for the, the, the trauma that is experienced by these. And so I think it's it, sexual violence against women is, is the most important 
universal human rights violation period. And I, I think just like we have a you know freedom of speech, freedom of the press, freedom of peaceable assembly, we should have freedom of sexual choice. And males attempt to bypass that sexual choice through various uh, means. And I, and I think that attention to these sex differences can help solve these problems. Well, I am sure that your book is going to start a lot of important conversations. So thank you so much for writing it. And thanks for joining me for this thank conversation. You. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your latest book, When Men Behave Badly? Yeah, sure. Uh, so probably the easiest place is just to go to my website. So it's my name, davidbuss.com or www.davidbuss.com. And on that site, I have links to my book. I have links to my other books. I have links to all of my scientific articles as well, which can be downloaded for free and other useful information. So, for example, we have uh, with Josh Duntley, we developed a, a uh, website for helping victims of stalking called stalkinghelp.org. Uh, and so there's information in the book and, and on that website for if you have to be a victim of stalking or know someone who's been a victim of stalking. When we're in the process of developing parallel websites for victims of sexual harassment and sexual assault. Yeah, davidbuss.com is a place to find it. And I hope people find the book useful. I hope so too. I'm sure they will. And the title again is When Men Behave Badly. Thanks for your time, David. And thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Miller and Instagram at Justin J. Miller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.